and show us the glories of Christ and pray that we would have hearts that would be fertile soil that you would speak to us through your word and transform us this morning. I pray for Keith, that his words would be your words this morning, that you would fill him with your spirit even now. And Lord, we pray for our kids, that you would soften their hearts, that they would come to know you even this morning and bless the teachers as well. So, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit, show us the glories of Christ, fill us with all your fullness, and to you who's able to do far more than we can ever think or imagine, may you be glorified at this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, uh, Keith Carlson's going to preach the word to us this morning. He's preached here several times before. Uh, He was a pastor at Grace Church for about 20 years. He was a pastor of outreach and care. Um, he actually helped found the, what became the Grace Care Center, and he's currently uh, leading a new nonprofit called Greenhouse Giving to help inspire more effective philanthropy. Um, he is uh, married to Rosalind, and he's been, they've been married for over 31 years, and they have three children all grown up. So uh, let's welcome Keith. Why don't you come on up here and preach the word? Seventeen days, forty-five thousand feet of elevation gain, all while carrying forty-pound backpacks uh, on our backs, which carried everything we needed for the seventeen days on the trail. Claire's twenty-three; she's in really, really good shape. So I was the one we were worried about uh, for the twelve-plus mile days we were hiking. But we settled into a, a great rhythm together. We ended up having some unspoken rules that we both followed, like never complaining, ever, Uh, even with a sprained ankle. Um, Up at 5.30 in the morning, stuff our sleeping bags into their sacks, clean out the tent. Claire would heat up the water for our breakfast of hot oatmeal. I would take down the tent and pack it. We would pack up our gear. We would make our morning video. We'd wait till the last minute to get our backpacking clothes on because it would be cold that time in the morning. We would pack our backpacks, make one last sweep, of the camp to make sure we didn't leave anything and no trash, and then we were on the trail by 6.30. I would take the lead because if Claire led, then she would hike way too fast for me, so I was the one always in front. When we got to camp uh, early afternoon, we both knew our roles. Um, I would set up the tent, but Claire would actually pound in the the stakes because I was getting really lightheaded at that elevation. And then we would alternate filtering the water We would clean out our backpacking clothes from the day, which were quite stinky and dirty by that time. And then finally, once we were done with all that, we could take a rest and we could either read or sit by the lake for the afternoon. But Claire and I never sat down and wrote out our expectations and our roles with each other. These were unspoken, but we intuitively knew how to act with each other and what our different roles were. And we had a great time together. It was an amazing gift of time with my now grown adult daughter that she wanted to spend that much time with me. 
Of course, she's not here to tell you that this morning. This was my interpretation of our time together. But part of the reason it was so good and so natural and fun was that it was easy and easy to be with each other. It was because of the unspoken rules that we adopted together. I wish that the same could be said for the family of God. I'm seeing today that there is significant confusion about who we are and how we are to act as Christ followers, as Christians, as the people of God. Now, I've only lived 56 years, but I've never seen such a time when there is such confusion and difference of opinion about who we are and how we are to act. People are all over the map. Do we have any guidance for how we are to act and what our identity is as the people of God, as the, as the community of God, as the church? Well, yes, that's pretty much one of the main reasons of the whole scripture, all throughout the scripture, the formation of the community of the people of God, us as Christians, us sitting here this morning as Chinese Christian church, Chinese community church. Every community has rules, whether written or unspoken, which guide their conduct, their actions, their beliefs, their identity. For instance, my wife and I live in a subdivision in Westfield called Beacon Point, and we belong then to this homeowners association called the Beacon Point Homeowners Association. Now, I have to admit that we've lived in our home since 1997, and I have never, before this spring, never been to a homeowners association meeting, our annual meeting. I missed 24 of them in a row, but then this spring, I had a free evening, and my neighbor happened to ask me, Keith, do you want to come to the HOA meeting tonight? And I said, sure. Now, I've known that we have rules and bylaws which govern our neighborhood, rules for everything from not allowing a chicken coop in our backyard to supposedly not having a boat in your front yard. But it became apparent in attending that homeowners association meeting that night that there are also many unspoken rules as well in the neighborhood. And it was an eventful evening, to say the least, leading actually that night to the vice president of the HOA resigning, and then a month or two later, the president resigning as well. All of us belong to different communities, multiple communities. We, some of us have family. We have workplace. We have school, maybe a knitting club, a book club, maybe the birders of Indiana or a bridge or a euchre club, or a master gardening community, or the Chinese Christian church. And they all have certain rules and expectations of conduct and identity. So back to the people of God, us as Christians. What are the expectations, the rules, our identity as Christ followers? Well, the Bible answers that question, addresses that question in many of the 66 books found throughout the Bible. But one place we don't always often just turn to to look immediately is Leviticus, as Chris mentioned this morning, the book that you've been studying together with Pastor uh, Justin, what he's been leading you through. Pastor Justin asked me to preach on Levit Leviticus chapter 19 this morning. As it turns out, Leviticus 19 
goes a long ways towards answering that question of who we are and how we are to behave. I would suggest strongly that the family rules for the family of God revolve around two very important verses that we find in Leviticus chapter 19. And the reason I know that they're important, and Chris even alluded to it this morning, led us through the liturgy, is that they're referred to multiple times in the New Testament. They're referred to many times and quoted in the New Testament. So the first comes right off the bat in Leviticus 19, verse 1, where it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is probably one, if not the most important passage in the Bible regarding our identity as the people of God. And to explain why, I'm going to invoke one of my favorite theologians of all time, Dr. Chester Wood. Chet Wood and his wife Dolores live in Fishers, Indiana, of all places. After a lifetime of serving as professor and dean at First Asian Theological Seminary in the Philippines and then Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology in Nairobi, Kenya. And I was introduced to him, thankfully, many, many years ago. And allow me to introduce him to you in his own words, because it's important for context of what I'm going to say he taught me about this verse and about what justice and holiness means. He says, I grew up as a Christian in Midwest America. I had very little understanding of what biblical justice was beyond justification by faith through faith in Jesus. Even the burning issue of my day, the civil rights movement for African Americans in the 60s, had little impact on me and my faith. But years later, in 1976, when I arrived in the Philippines with my wife and three young daughters and began work as a missionary teacher at Asian Theological Seminary, my faith and my understanding of biblical justice were confronted for the first time with the reality much of the world lives in, massive poverty. The poverty we saw in the Philippines was overwhelming. We lived in Metro Manila, where 9 million of the 11 million Filipinos living there survived on less than a dollar a day. Some of them became our neighbors and friends. We visited them in their shacks. We spoke haltingly in their language. Eventually, we came to realize that the systemic roots of poverty were nourished in the soil of injustice. And although I had earned all the appropriate degrees to address such matters from a biblical perspective, a BA, BD, THM, PhD, I had no useful understanding concerning what God thought about poverty and injustice. So in 1979, at age 36, I decided to begin tackling this matter by starting at the beginning in Genesis and asking the question, what does God say and do concerning poverty? That's Dr. Chetwood in his words. And I invited him to teach a class on justice years ago at Grace Church when I was at Grace. And one of the things that he taught in that class has stuck with me over the years since. He said that when God formed the people of God, the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, 
the Israelites. He set them apart. That's what the word holy means in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1. Be set apart. Be holy, for I am holy. He set them apart. He asked them to be holy for a very specific reason. All of the other nations at the time surrounding the people of God, surrounding the Israelites, all of them, and most of them since that time as well, had formed visible gods, made visible idols to worship. They worship idols that they can see. They fashion their gods into images carved in stone or wood or pictures or images, and they worshiped the image of their god that was visible to them. Their gods are visible, they can be seen, but the God of the Israelites, our God, the one true God, cannot be seen. He's invisible, and that presented a problem. How do you tell about your God when he can't be seen? You can't bring him into school for show and tell because you would be showing something to people that they couldn't see. But God had a great plan to answer this question for his people. He said, I'm going to establish rules for you, ways for you to behave, ways for you to treat each other and interact. And these rules are going to be very, very different from all the other nations around you. All the rest of the ways that the world acts These rules are going to set you apart, be holy, and make you so distinct from the other nations and the people around you that they will notice the difference. You will treat each other with kindness and compassion. You'll protect the innocent and welcome the stranger. You'll give a home to the orphan and companionship to the widow. Those who are poor you will look after. Those who have been victims of injustice, you will defend. You will respect your parents. You'll not take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. You'll give hospitality to the wanderer and the immigrant. You will forgive the debts of those who find themselves enslaved. All of these rules were extremely countercultural at that time. The rules that God established for the people of God to set them apart for them to be holy. And the point of those rules was, first of all, to make a beautiful society, for sure, but also so that the other nations would stand up and ask the question, why do you treat each other in this way? Why do you do this? And the answer would be, because we follow the one true God, the invisible God. Let me tell you about this God. Be holy as I am holy. Be set apart. Act in such a way towards each other that the people living around you will stop and notice and ask why. And then you can tell them about the God who they cannot see. Now, as it turns out, the very same principle is echoed through Jesus. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus himself says, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone 
will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Treat each other so uniquely by your love for one another that people will notice and this will point them to Jesus. So when God says in Leviticus 19, verse 1, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, and then he follows that up with a series of rules and commands, God is telling the Israelites to be different, to be set apart from the nations around them by doing the following that he lists. Respect your father and mother. Observe the Sabbath. Do not make metal idols for yourself. When you reap the harvest, leave some in the field for the poor, for the foreigner. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not rob your neighbor. Do not cheat your workers. Do not curse the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. Do not pervert justice. Do not show favoritism. Do not slander others. Do not endanger your neighbor's life. Do not hate a fellow Israelite. Do not bear a grudge. These rules set the Israelites apart. And most of the rules had to do with treating people fairly, and especially people who are marginalized, who are poor, who are vulnerable. This was not the norm for that day. If you were poor, you were at extreme risk. If you were a widow or an orphan or a traveler, an immigrant, you were exposed to the harshest treatment with no recourse, no one to defend you, no laws to fall back on. This was the extreme injustice in that day. God's rules for his family, for his people, were very, very different. And Dr. Wood taught us that the main reason behind those rules, those expectations of justice, fairness, compassion for the Israelites, that this would be the clearest evidence, the clearest apologetic for his existence as God. Justice and fairness. You know, some people today say that social justice is not a Christian thing, but I would beg to differ because the Bible is all about it. Interestingly, this summer when Claire and I were backpacking, the deepest conversations we had with fellow backpackers when we would meet them on the trail had to do with why Claire and I, as father and daughter, would willingly want to spend 17 days on the trail together. Lots of great conversations ensued from their observations about how we treated each other. And that leads us directly to the second command found in Leviticus chapter 19, which is really vitally important to us because of the number of times it's quoted in the New Testament as well. And we find it in verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes this as the second great command, and Paul and James both refer to this command as the summation of the rest of the law. The question always has been, though, what does it mean? How do we love our neighbor as ourself, and who is our neighbor? As Dr. Kevin DeYoung says in his commentary on this passage, instead of giving flowery, poetic, 
language about love, imagery about love, the author of Leviticus gives us very practical commands to illustrate what loving your neighbor is and what it means in our everyday life. DeYoung says in this passage, verses 11 through 18 particularly, he gives us five areas of life in which we are to love our neighbors. In verses 9 and 10, it tells us to love our neighbors with our possessions. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go to your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, be generous. Be generous with your possessions. Do not be stingy. Share. Share your wealth, especially with the poor. Then verses 11 and 12 tell us to love our neighbors with our words, not just our possessions, but with our words. It says, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Love others through your transactions and by your words, by being honest, telling the truth, not lying, not deceiving. The very things we learned in kindergarten, but we may have a hard time doing for some reason as adults. Love with words. And then verses 13 and 14 tell us to love our neighbors with our actions. It says, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. In other words, do not take advantage of the weak, the vulnerable, the poor, the lowest people on the totem pole in the business. Be fair. Watch out for them. Do not oppress others. In other words, be just. Fight for justice. Love with your actions. And then verse 15 and 16 tell us to love our neighbors in our judgments. It says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Justice is equal and fair treatment, a fair process. What would our community, what would it look like if we adhered to these principles? And on top of that, to not judge others. And we didn't spread, and, and we don't spread slander. It's hard to even imagine what it would look like if we lived in that way. Finally, in verse 17 and 18, he tells us to love our neighbors in our attitude. Do not, it says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's not enough to be polite on the outside. We have to be truthful on the inside as well and not hold internal frustrations or grudges against others. Loving means loving people means being willing to say the hard things with truth and grace and being lovingly honest. And so DeYoung sums it all up in this way. He says, loving your neighbor boils down to five very elementary, everyday, ordinary commands. Share, 
Tell the truth. Don't take advantage of the weak. Talk it out and be fair. Simpler said than done? Certainly. Because the problem is that we're always fighting our natural inclinations to be selfish, to be greedy, to be exclusive, to be prideful, to be judgmental. And each of those are natural, sinful inclinations working directly against us loving our neighbor. One more note about loving our neighbor as ourself. We naturally think of our neighbor as people just like us. The people who live next door, the people who live in our cul-de-sac or our subdivision or our school district. The problem is that we tend to associate and live near people that we like, that we're comfortable with, that are like uh, people who are like us, similar social status. Oftentimes our neighborhoods are not racially diverse at all. We tend to be most comfortable living near people like us. But Jesus' definition of our neighbor is very different than that. Jesus famously answers the question of who is my neighbor with one of the most memorable parables of all time found in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that, at the end of it, Jesus asks the expert, he asks the expert of the law, which of the men in the story was a neighbor to the person in need? And the expert replies, the one who had mercy on him. A neighbor is someone who may be very different than us. It may even be our enemy. It may be the last person in the world that we want to associate with, but it doesn't matter in Jesus' estimation. We are supposed to have mercy on those who need mercy and need compassion. If they need mercy and compassion, we are to give it to them in the most generous way possible. We're to live out of a heart of generosity, especially to those who need it most. And Leviticus is very consistent with what Jesus says in giving concrete examples of who the neighbor is. The poor, the foreigner, the hired worker, the blind, the deaf, those are who our neighbor is. God's heart for justice beats loudly, it beats clearly throughout the Bible if we will open our eyes and our hearts to what he's calling us to do. So what does this kind of justice mean for us today? Well, it probably means not focusing on maximizing our profits as the sole purpose of our business. What gleaning opportunities do you have in your business to help others? And notice that in the gleaning, the poor still have to work to obtain their food. There's some great principles here, but what does it mean for your business? It probably means loving and caring for immigrants and allowing them to live among us, next door to us. It probably means determining who the outcasts are today and caring for them. It means being truthful. It means not attacking people in hurtful and personal ways in person or on social media as well. The rules for us as Christians, as as the followers of Jesus, as the people of God, these rules are not actually that hard 
to understand. They're pretty clear for us. God's made it abundantly clear all throughout the Bible. God's heart for the poor, God's heart for justice could not be clearer. What's hard for us is actually living out those rules. The truth is, each of us have to look deep inside our heart and ask the question, why am I not living by these rules? Why do I care more about my own comfort? Why do I care more about my own security? Why do I care more about what people think of me? And here's the problem. We as Christians, I hope this isn't true of this body, and it may not be, but we as Christians are not abiding by the family rules. And as a result, we are not pointing people to God. In fact, if we look around, it's probably just the opposite. By our actions, we continue to push people further and further from God. There's a younger generation we're praying for this weekend that are away at camp, but this younger generation is watching Christians. They're watching the church in the way that we treat each other and the way that we treat the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. And that younger generation, it's directly causing them to leave the church. Many are leaving the church and vowing never to set foot in it again because of how they're watching Christians treat each other. Our witness is atrocious right now. Until we fix that by loving each other as ourselves, loving our neighbor as ourselves, loving our neighbor as Jesus loved, we will not have revival, the thing that we desperately pray for. So let's start. Let's at least take a first step by learning how to love each other well. Will you pray with me? God, I I thank you for this very, very obscure book that you led Pastor Justin to preach through over these last few weeks because there are some really, really applicable and important things for us to listen to today. And I pray that each of us can look inside our hearts and and honestly ask ourselves the question, what do I want my life to be about at this point? Do I want to follow the way that so many people are going this day, this day and age, or am I going to listen to you and your word for me, your word for me of how I am supposed to love how I'm supposed to love others, even those that are very, very difficult. God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to do that. I thank you so much for the grace and the mercy that you give to us so very clearly as Chris led us through this morning. I thank you that you continue to invite us to the cross. You continue to invite us to share your heart and you'll continue always to invite us home in that way. And so, God, I pray for this dear group of people, this group of people who are trying to love you well and trying to worship you truly and honestly and trying to love their neighbors as yourself. And I pray you'd give them the power and the courage to do that. In Jesus' name I pray.